Hey, this is Matthew Lilly. Welcome to the Presence Pioneers podcast. Everyone, welcome to today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you've ever wondered, why do we worship the way we worship? You're going to love today's episode. Did you know that for the last 2,000 years, Christians have not always worshiped the same way that we do in our Western evangelical churches? It's looked a lot different over the last 2,000 years. And we have special guest, Dr. Lester Ruth, who is the uh, research professor of Christian worship at Duke Divinity School, and he has given years and years of his life to studying the history of contemporary or modern praise and worship. And so we are going to dive into history today. It's going to be exciting to think about why are we doing the things we're doing the way we're doing. And it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Look, before we dive in, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. The Presence Pioneers podcast exists to equip presence-centered communities to worship and pray night and day. We want to help you experience the presence of God if you're a leader to host the presence of God in your community, because we believe God's presence changes everything. Thanks so much. Please subscribe if you're not yet, if you're new to the podcast. You can also visit our website at presencepioneers.org. You can search through all the previous episodes and you can make a donation if you'd like. You can learn more about our ministry. We offer short little Bible teachings and then extended conversations and interviews like the one we're going to have today with leaders in the worship and prayer movement. And so please subscribe. Stay tuned with us. We're on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and we would love to just track with you and help you, equip you and provide a resource for you as you are worshiping and praying and pursuing God as a community. All right, Dr. Lester Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, We connected when our family was living in the Durham area. You are at Duke Divinity School. I'm going to give a little bio here, a historian of Christian worship with interest in the early church, especially the last 250 years and the history of contemporary praise and worship. Uh, You wrote a book called Loving on Jesus that came out in recent years, A Concise History of Contemporary Worship. I've read it. Really fascinating book. Very good. And you're working on a larger academic, thick book, just concise, I mean, not concise, a detailed uh, history of contemporary praise and worship that I I think is supposed to be out next year. And uh, and so we're going to dive into some history today, which that's kind of different for the podcast. But you have such interesting research and perspective and so much of what people that tune into this podcast are doing, they're doing it thinking, oh, this is normal. (laughs) This is the way Christians act. And the truth is, it's not always been that way. So we're going to talk about history, and I'm, I'm excited to get your perspective on the podcast today. Let's start with this, if you don't mind, sure. because some people might want to tune out and say, oh, this is going to be about history. This is going to be boring. Why is church history important? Why does it even matter to know what the history of contemporary or modern worship is? Why is that important for us today? Well, I, I, thanks. Um, and I hope... I hope people won't just immediately jump off right now because we're (laughs) going to talk history. I think it matters for a variety of reasons. One, we've got to realize Christian worship's always evolving. It is always changing. And history is just an attempt to try to come to grasp with what's gone on in the past, how it is that we got to where we are today, and what's likely to come. And I think that can have two benefits. One, it can show us where we've gone off the rails, that it's easy for Christians to fall into ruts and how they worship and just to carry on practices that they've inherited. And the original motivation, the drive, the biblical reasoning, the the leading that God led a group of people to worship that way, that could be lost. So history can sometimes show us where we've gone off the rails. History can also show us rut, uh, ways out of the ruts that we've fallen into. It's one of the it's how I got into worship history. I was just a Methodist pastor 
wanting to find ways to reinvigorate, uh, renew the worship life of my people. And I found that by reading ancient worship history, I discovered new ideas and new ways of thinking about things uh, that I never would have done just in my own kind of small pastoral context. So worship history can show us where we've gone off the rails, and worship history can show us ways to get out of ruts that we might have been we might have fallen into over the years. Yeah, that's so good. So like I said at the intro, the way we worship, especially most of the people that are tuning in to this are in either the evangelical or charismatic stream of Western worship uh, in the 21st century, but that's not the way we've always worshiped. What was, what was it like? I mean, I know that's a huge question, but the last 2000 years, what did I mean? What did Christian worship look like? They weren't gathering and playing guitars for thirty minutes and then have having a, a sermon and the lights and all those things that come along with the with modern worship expression and experience. So, I mean, what was it? What was it like? I mean, this is a huge question. The last two thousand years, you know. Okay, well, sure. Um, I, let's actually start today. Sure. And let me peel off layer by layer on when some of those now just assumed practices came into place. So, for instance, the use of um, software to do worship planning is a development of the last 20 years. Uh, When I first started doing contemporary praise and worship as a young Christian in the late 1970s, well, of course, we didn't even know computers at that time in the late 70s. (laughs) So all the technological advancements over the last 20 to 25 years, even the idea of computer-based projection of lyrics, for me, that's a recent development because it is only widespread in the last 20 to 25 years. In uh, modern worship or contemporary praise and worship, for the first several decades, people would have used overhead projectors. Yep. Which uh, the song lyrics, (laughs) yes, the song lyrics were printed on a single, you know, clear sheet, and you had to have one person there with the responsibility to shift them on and off and make sure that they didn't put it on upside down um, (laughs) or mirrored backwards or whatever. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But you see, even prior to that, when, when contemporary praise and worship really got its roots in the 40s and 50s, the song repertoires, the, the lyrics were all internalized. People just sang spontaneously with no projection of lyrics whatsoever. And part of that was a much smaller number of songs. Uh, the other part was the, the song structures were much simpler. They tended to be chorus only or verse only. Uh, there are no popular worship songs with bridges, for instance, until the mid to late 1990s. Um, right. As soon as you get two verses, a chorus, a pre-chorus, and a bridge, then you've got to project the lyrics oh, somehow yeah. just because of the complexity of the song. Uh, guitars. We mentioned guitars. Those are not commonplace until the 70s, especially the late 70s, early 80s is when those would become commonplace in people doing praise and worship mm-hmm. or or presence-oriented ways of worship, we might call. Prior to that, I mean, it was just as popular. Some of the the leading churches of the 1970s had full orchestras. That's amazing. Brass and wind and string sections. That's the word I was looking for there. Yeah. I mean, they were, yeah, they were full orchestras. Uh, Prior to that, praise and worship, presence-oriented worship was just piano or organ-driven. Yeah, I mean another common assumption that we have of uh, the ever-present worship leader. Yeah, <laughs> that term itself really does not go past the late 1970s. Interesting. It's an, it's an evolution of the earlier term song leader, and as this way of worship was developing in the 60s and 70s, and the idea that we needed an extended time of congregational singing, moving from praise to worship. But the role of the person leading the singing uh, was not just to lead the song, the song leader, but it was to lead God's people into worship, into God's presence. And yeah. I mean, those are all developments that I can date fairly clearly uh, yeah. to the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. 
Wow. So what, so that, that's the 20th century. <laughs> what, sure. did, what, what did we do for 2000 years? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. What, um, what, were, what were Christians doing? We've been singing in some ways for 2000 years, right? Yeah. But see, even there you have wide variety. Diversity is always the name of the game in Christian worship. Yeah. So for the first several centuries, Christians would not have used any musical instruments at all because musical instruments were too closely associated with pagan rituals. Right. So singing would have been a cappella, and they would have emphasized singing in unison, um, not harmonic singing and nothing with any musical complexity to it. Uh, Singing often had a call and response sort of nature to it. Yeah. When people, and obviously before electricity, you can't project lyrics, but when you can't mass reproduce lyrics, the song lyrics, um, in oral cultures, often what you do is you have a soloist or a choir who'll sing the main verses, and then there'll be a short little refrain that the congregation will join back in on. Um, You can actually see that in the Bible. Is it Psalm 118, Psalm 119? Where it says his love endures forever, and then his they'll love sing endures a phrase. Forever. And then, so you have verse, his yep. love endures forever. You can just see it actually built into the structure of the song yeah. there. And in, um, uh, I think it's Nehemiah or Ezra, there, there's a, also a story of where they have an, uh, antiphonal, antiphonal singing that's happening there, where they have even choirs. It says that there's yep. multiple choirs that are, that are singing um, in, you know, in those days, which is pretty fascinating. Choirs catch on in, among Christians in the fourth century or so. Okay. That's when we first start getting clear evidence of those. And and when you have a choir, what that allows you to do is rehearse. And when you can rehearse, you can have more complicated music. Right. But their essential role was the, the choir never stood down. Okay. So by the time you get late patristic into the Middle Ages... The, the entire service is essentially musical and it's an interesting, it's almost like opera. So you have the clergy with their respective roles sung by and large. You, uh, so you have um, priests and deacons. Then you have the choir and the congregation is interacting with all of it. But the whole, the whole text is essentially musical. There's, it's a much less... interesting. A less sharp division between now we're speaking and now we're singing and being musical. Yeah. Uh, and and when you're chanting, which is a semi sort of musical form, you can see that that's kind of a halfway point. Yeah. So if you're even handling the scripture readings in that way. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating is like the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, which is doing, which is done 24 seven musical worship and prayer for the last 20 years a lot of people that tune in with us are inspired by what they're doing and sure. and that kind of thing and, and and they they number one they sing scripture and pray scripture they yep. have us they have certain portions that are antiphonal yep. <laughs> and the music never stops it's, it's very fascinating it's almost like you know obviously it's using contemporary musical styles and instruments but it's, it's, it sounds very similar if you think about, you know, it's kind of the music's going nonstop. There's singers going. The Bible is in the middle of it. And they're kind of, it's kind of bouncing around back and forth, but it, yeah. it all kind of flows together rather than we're going to have music time. And then now we're going to have somebody teach and, and preach the scriptures. So, you, you know, I'm sure, uh, I'm pretty sure they haven't tried to intentionally pick up on historic practices there, but it's interesting <laughs> that in their desire to have unceasing worship, that they have fallen back into things that have shown up from time to time. And you can, I mean, if I can just show your audience one thing, this is my wristwatch. I mean, these are fairly new technology. And so for the first 15 to 16, 1700 years of Christian worship, there's a whole different sense of relationship to time. Interesting. Unbounded time, the ability to let things unfold respond, not feel pressured to try to get things done quickly. That's interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. And so we are where we are now. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people probably, I would guess if they had to think about 
modern contemporary worship. I use the term modern, but we're, we're kind of sure. doing the same thing when we say modern worship and contemporary worship. But a lot of people think probably about the Jesus movement uh, uh-huh. and, and what, what emerged there. But there's actually uh, some earlier things that began stirring in the 40s and 50s. And so I'd love for you to maybe start, maybe share some of the, the story of that. There was the latter rain revival that began to happen in the late forties and early fifties. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that that was in, in a lot of ways, a Genesis point of what we would call modern worship? Yeah, indeed. In fact, I'm working on a paper right now, conference paper I'll give in a month or two on why we would still have contemporary praise and worship or modern worship, even if there had not been any Jesus people. Wow. Um, The problem has been in the writing of the history is to presume that we only have the Mississippi River because we have the Ohio River. Let me explain this. So the Ohio River is the Jesus people developments, but there are actually headwaters. The Mississippi starts uh, before the Ohio flows into it. So in the late 40s into the 50s, you had some Christians, especially in Canada of all places, who got caught up with a theology based on Psalm 22.3 that God inhabits the praises of his people. And there was a revival that broke out in Canada in 1948 in Saskatchewan, of all places, and that theology gets attached to that revival, and it just captures the imagination of everyone involved with that. They're all Pentecostal. Uh, by that time, Pentecostal worship had been around half a century, and it had fallen into its own sort of ruts. Yeah. So you mean from um, because of the Azusa Street Revival? Early yeah, that's 1900s. 1906. So there was that Pentecostal movement, but by the time you get to the 40s, 50s, it was kind of it was kind of in a rut. Yeah, you're in you're into third generation Pentecostal by then. Yeah. And so they still emphasized praise. But at least the folks in Canada attached to this revival thought it was rather formulaic, dead, and lifeless, which is not normally the terms we associate with Pentecostal worship, but these are Pentecostals self-critiquing other Pentecostals. Yeah. And you can see how that theology that could spark an idea of worship renewal, that if we will reemphasize the praise of God, this is the way that we can, in new and fresh and powerful ways, experience God's manifest presence among us. And so that, that theology and the practices developed, um, the churches engaged in this largely got kicked out of the already established Pentecostal denominations. So in the U.S., the Assemblies of God wouldn't have anything to do with those sort of folks. And in Canada, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada wouldn't have anything to do with those sort of votes. It was a loose network of independent congregations, many on the West Coast, um, Canada, uh, the Midwest. Uh, I, I recently discovered that one of the leading churches in the 1950s was about two blocks away from my family's favorite barbecue restaurant in Beaumont, Texas. Oh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> a church, I mean, a church that I've driven by dozens of times, but never understood the significance of it until wow. recently. Um, I was in Beaumont, Texas a couple months ago for the first time. <laughs> oh, is that right? You didn't happen yeah. to be at Sabine Tabernacle, were you? I did not, no. No, that was the name of the there. church, Sabine Tabernacle. <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's a typical congregation today, but in the 1950s, it was a hot spot right. of developments. Um, and, and one of the big developments was this extended period of praise, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. In fact, some of the leading churches, this is the funny part, funny in terms of my enjoyment, not funny in terms of me trying to make fun of it, uh, but Reg Lazell, for instance, is one of the real instigators of this. He's at um, a big church in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. His church had a pre-worship service praise service. <laughs> so they would gather, was it an hour, 30 minutes ahead of time in a separate room? Everybody would kneel. They would praise God independently out loud for crazy for 30, 45 minutes. And then at the end of that, they would all stand up and then 
walk into the sanctuary for the main service to begin. Yeah. Which began with another extended period of congregational praising. Yeah. Uh, musically driven in this instance. Right. Um, and they, so these praise sessions, I won't call them sets yet because they're not necessarily musical until the 60s, the 70s. Gotcha. They were just out loud speaking praises. They weren't necessarily singing. Maybe they were sometimes, but it was yep. a lot of speaking out praise to God. And, and there's a fluidity to the whole thing. So the speaking can morph over into spontaneous selection of a particular praise or worship song, uh, which the keyboardist would support on their instrument, which might lead into singing in tongues for an extended period of time, which might lead into a prophetically given, spontaneously given, spirit-given song, um, which might lead back into another extended period of spoken praising. Yeah. Um, the, the, I mean, the whole technology now, particularly in larger churches where it's like, you know, we're playing to a click track with in-ear monitors and we've allocated yeah. this much time for this song and this much time for the worship set. None of that sensibility is in play in the 50s and right. 60s. Right. That's fascinating. And and what they were doing and what you're describing, that was that was largely unheard of at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, that was it. Was, no, Pentecostal worship would have been more lively Baptist worship. OK. <laughs> by and large. OK. Yeah. So things were in a sequence. Yeah. You, you might have people speaking one or two things out loud, but not this kind of wholesale, whole congregation engagement. Yeah. I mean, when you yeah. read the accounts, it's quite clear um, from both non-Pentecostals and other Pentecostals, when they go to one of these services in the 50s and 60s, they are quite struck by the newness of it and the power of it, overwhelmed by it. So I think it's interesting, number one, that this was happening so early in the 40s and 50s, which a lot of people might think that thing might be more either Jesus people movement or maybe vineyard when, when some of those things might, might would have started to happen, but this was happening late forties, early fifties already in the, in the latter rain revival. In that latter uh, rain revival. Yeah. Yeah. So share with us about Reg Lazell, because when I started this hearing about him and his story, and if you, if you don't mind recounting that story of him sure, and the Psalm 22, three, and that was really, I mean, you can trace a lot back to this guy's, <laughs> this pastor's experience and what he began to teach in terms of so much influence on how we worship right now. This one pastor up in Canada. Hey guys, this is Matthew. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider joining Presence Pioneers Premium our brand new subscriber community. Paid subscribers will get exclusive premium content such as bonus podcast episodes, exclusive articles, early releases, and more. Presence Pioneers will be releasing its first e-course in 2024 with many more to come. And the Presence Pioneers premium subscribers will always have full access to the entire library of online courses. Visit media.presencepioneers.org or click the link in the description to join today. You can become a premium member today for an introductory price of only $5 a month. When the price goes up in the future, as our library of resources grows, you can stay subscribed at the original price. If you've enjoyed our podcast for a while, Becoming a premium member is a simple way for you to help us cover the cost of producing this podcast and partner with Presence Pioneers in equipping the church with resources for day and night prayer, prophetic worship, missions, and revival. Visit media.presencepioneers.org to sign up today. Okay, if I can, let me frame him in terms of a meme that one of my um, 
students here at Duke has made for me. Okay. It's a picture of the well-known theologian Karl Barth and a picture of Reg Lazelle put next to each other. Okay. And the caption says, one of these men is the most important theologian of the 20th century, and the other one is Karl Barth. <laughs> um, wow. So I think Reg Lazelle is the most important theologian of worship for the 20th century, especially in the fact that he's almost virtually unknown. That's a big statement. He was a, a businessman from Toronto who took early retirement right after World War II. So World War II ends 1945. Yeah, the latter part of that year, he gets a letter from the district superintendent out in um, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada in British Columbia, which is the very western part of the nation. Uh, would you come out here and just go around to some of the churches and speak? Uh, because Reg had been doing that in some of the Toronto churches in the Ontario area, which is, you know, eastern Canada. So he gets out there early January 1946, and he goes to his first church, and the pastor's sick. And he has to lead the whole meeting, and he starts. I think the first one was on a Sunday night, and it goes terrible. It's completely flat. Um, there's no life in it at all. In and if you know anything about Pentecostal worship, you don't want flat, <laughs> right. lifeless services. So that happens not once, that not happens twice. You know, by midweek, he's desperate. So he decides he's going to have a day of fasting. And so he goes to the church building early in the day, pastor's still sick, and uh, he is just praying, praying to God to, to help him find a way to have good services where God would be there and active. And he says, you know, midway during the day, this, um, this verse came to mind, Psalm 22, 3, you are the Holy One. I'm not going to put it in the King James, my own updated English version. You are the Holy One who inhabits the praises of Israel. And so initially he thought, oh, I know what the problem is. I've got unconfessed sin and God is holy. So he begins confessing every possible sin that he imagines that he's done. And it Again, he didn't feel anything in his spirit. There was no witness to his spirit that this was what needed to be done. So his mind goes to the second half of the verse. Uh, Thou inhabitest the praises of Israel. There's the King James. So he decides that's the key. If we want God to be present, this place needs to be filled with the, present, uh, with the praises of God. So starting about mid-afternoon, he does nothing for the rest of the afternoon through the dinner hour up to the very beginning of the service time, which if I remember correctly was 7 p.m. He does nothing but walk around the entire church facility praising God out loud. He even goes into bathrooms for a while. <laughs> and, and in his description of this, he said, and I lingered by the piano for a long while because the pianist was rather dead. <laughs> So even as the service time is approaching, I love that. Um, he goes up. He doesn't quit. He goes up to his chair on the platform. He kneels down, and he literally keeps praising until the very moment the service is scheduled to begin. He stands up, turns around, announces the first hymn, There's Power in the Blood. They start to sing that hymn, and midway through the first verse of the first hymn, uh, the Holy Spirit comes, a woman is baptized with the Holy Spirit, begins speaking in tongues, that's soon followed by another person, and it's followed by another person, another person, and he is just totally, he knows what's brought this about. Yeah, He wow. has filled that space with the praises of God, and God's going to honor that promise. So he spends the whole rest of the week with his Bible concordance and his Bible looking up every Bible passage he can that has the word praise in it. And he soon connects it with a second critical verse, uh, Hebrews 13, 15, uh, about making the sacrifice of praise with our lips, the unceasing sacrifice of praise with our lips. And so what he does is he begins to construct an elementary theology. Psalm 22, 3 provides the promise where there is praise, God will be there. 
And Hebrews 13, 15 provides the um, commandment to offer up the sacrifice of praise. So he's got a positive commandment and a positive promise. He links those those two together, and he spends all the rest of his time there in Western Canada doing nothing but uh, preaching and teaching on praise and God's presence. Um, Goes back home to Toronto. Uh, a little bit later in the year, he gets an invitation, again, from the same district superintendent uh, to come back out to Western Canada, that there's an open pastorate he wants Reg Lazelle to take. Now, this fellow's been a businessman his entire life. He's he's never been a pastor of a church. Yeah. Um, but he agrees to do it, and he goes out there, and he gets uh, established in British Columbia, uh, make some friends there, including a fellow named George Houghton, who has this Pentecostal Bible school in Saskatchewan, and they make a promise to each other that if, uh, if, the, if a major work of God breaks out in either one of their ministries, they would let the other one know. Uh, 1948, uh, the big revival breaks out uh, in Saskatchewan at George Houghton School, and Reg Lazelle goes out there, and they team up, and others get involved. And that revival in 1948, which is drawing people from across Canada and across the United States, uh, becomes the perfect platform for Reg Lazelle's theology because uh, on multiple levels, it just syncs up well. The practices yeah. that they have there, the general sort of perspective and the theology that Reg Lazelle has, uh, particularly the notion that this is this is restored Bible truth, that this is not anything new, this is... This was something that the church once knew uh, and has lost over the years. Um, It's there in the Bible. We just need to rediscover it. That fits well with the kind of the basis of the revival. And it spreads rapidly. It spreads rapidly internationally. Those those independent Pentecostal churches are quickly sending out missionaries across the globe. Um, Resh Lazelle takes international trips extended international trips to teach this, along with many, many others. Um, Those churches become their own missionary sending organizations. You know, so by, if I can remember correctly, 1954 or so, there's a spirit-led woman from Reg Lazelle's church, uh, Kay Gordon, who feels led to go to the Arctic, a northern part of Canada, where she's teaching praise and worship. God's presence connected to praise to the Inuits, the native Inuits in northern Canada, of all places. Wow. Now, if your listeners are thinking, well, that is really nice, but how does that really end up impacting any of us? What if they've ever heard of CCLI? Yeah. The first president of CCLI grew up in Reg Lazelle's church, (laughs) and CCLI got developed in a church in Portland, Oregon, that Reg Lazelle taught how to do praise and worship. There you go. So CCLI is a secondary development out of the establishment of Lazelle's practice, ministry, and pastorate, yeah. both in a specific individual, Howard Wachinski, and in a particular congregation, Bible Temple there in Portland. Yeah. And I, gosh, that's fascinating. I, I love that story uh, of Rich Lazelle and the way he got this revelation and the immediate experience of it. So he got this insight and this revelation. He was teaching it. He was practicing it as a pastor. But then the latter rain revival allowed it to spread because he was connected with the leaders there. He taught. And then because people were coming in and going out and that was spreading and influencing that, that enabled this idea to get yeah. out. Is that right? That, yep. that God inhabits the praises of his people or he's enthroned in the praises of his people. And the understanding of that being what, so many what so many people take for granted today, which is the idea that as we sing and proclaim uh, God's praises, that his presence is manifest among us. And I believe that. I've actually taught that. And, uh, you know, that the name of the podcast is Presence Pioneers. So we're all about, you know, yeah. experiencing the presence of God, especially through extended times of worship and prayer. And so this is directly linked to what we're doing and, and giving yeah. ourselves to. And, and, you know, honestly, it's changed, it's changed my life. And I know it's changed, changed many other people's. Uh, apart from mainline congregations in the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox, 
What Reg Lazelle and this Lateran movement helped instigate is now the dominant form of worship around the world. Amazing. Crazy. <laughs> That's Absolutely crazy. crazy. And, it, and it's just astounding that notwithstanding his actual significance, he's a largely unknown figure. Yes, he is. Yeah, I'd never heard of him. And I've been leading worship, reading books on worship, teaching people about modern worship, you know, for since I graduated high school, really, and uh, had never heard of him until I came across some of your research. So you... Well, I mean, part of that is his own age. He was middle-aged by the middle 40s. Gotcha. Middle 1940s. And so he wrapped up his public ministry in the 1970s, which is when this really got legs expansively across a range of denominations and groups. And he was never musical himself. So his original emphasis was not a musical emphasis. It was a praise emphasis. Right. And the musicalizing of his theology occurred in the 1970s with different people. Yeah, that's in, that's very interesting. And that's where the vineyard comes into play. They're part of right. the musicalizing of the theology. They're, but that's a secondary development, not not the foundation itself. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating that they would literally just speak out praises, and and that was you know that was their pri- primary uh, understanding of Psalm twenty two three that it was it was not not even musical and and yeah. uh i know that the word in that verse is is the hebrew word tehila which is a musical term um yeah. is connected to the idea of singing but well yeah if you remember the background on reg lazelle he's a businessman he doesn't know hebrew right so he <laughs> if you told him tehila he would have no idea what it is you're talking about but if you said sure. praise yeah then he knows that verse so he 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 doesn't know to associate music sure. with certain Hebrew terms. Sure. Um, if I can tell you one funny story, because this is this yeah. is a, I love this story, it, and um, it was told to me by Dick Iverson, who since passed away, but he was the pastor of the church in Portland that CCLI came out of. Uh, church now has a different name, but back in the '60s, it was Bible Temple. Dick Iverson really wanted praise and worship in his congregation. He had seen it. He'd experienced its power. He'd experienced the presence of God through praise and worship, and he really wanted it in his congregation. So he invited Reg Lozelle to come visit his congregation, and he and another fellow named David Schock, who was from Long Beach, California, they were there to teach and lead. And Reg Lozelle, on his last night of teaching, said, I want everyone to come forward. So he had the entire congregation come up towards the pulpit, He took off his watch, he laid it on the pulpit, and he said, in obedience to Hebrews 13, 15, and trusting in God's promise, Psalm 22, 3, we are going to speak our praises out loud to God for 10 minutes. Everybody ready? One, two, three, go. (laughs) And initially, it was just Lazelle, you know, praise you, Jesus, we love you, Lord, I mean, just Hallelujah, and, yeah. And bit by bit, others began to join, Iverson. And by several meeting, minutes into it, everybody was saying something in praise of God. And by the end of it, the presence of God was there. But at the end of the 10 minutes, Lizelle said, okay, 10 minutes up, everybody quit. <laughs> <laughs> and Iverson was so disappointed because it was his congregation finally had seen it. But Lozell was trying to make the point that the promise was not according to our feelings. The promise was according to God's commands and God's biblical promises. Yeah, that's that's Um, a fun story. And that's actually a little bit different than some of the early Pentecostal theology, which was very much like you sort of tarry and you wait for the presence of God to come. Whereas he's saying, no, you don't have to wait for the presence of God to come. That, it, that there's biblical means that God gives us in which we can uh, experience God's presence. That, right? And, and, th- and they are very aware of that difference, and they realize yeah. that that is one of the distinctive things. One of the second-generation Latter-Rain folks had a funny saying. He's, 
he would say too many Pentecostals have lead poisoning. And by that, he would say they would wait until they feel led to do something before they would actually praise and worship God. But we have that sounds like a positive, little Pentecostal quip, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I know, but we have positive <laughs> biblical promises yeah. and positive biblical commandments to praise <laughs> and worship right. God, and we can trust those. I mean, not only the extended times of praising, but the notion that you don't tarry. In fact, right. Lazelle has he has a completely different reread of the original Pentecost narrative in light of this. Uh, uh, what is it? Psalm 96, I think, is the one that he quotes, where he says, Praise tarries for you in Zion, O Lord. So when he's describing the 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit, yeah, it, you know, it wasn't just like the apostles were just sitting there checking Twitter all the time, you know, <laughs> doing social media. He says, no, they understood the promise and the commandment. That for the 10 days, they actively praised God, and the outpouring on the day of Pentecost was God's response to those 10 days of praising. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. There is, there is actually a verse, I think, at the end of one of the Gospels where it talks about the apostles were praising God a, after Jesus' ascension. Anyway, that's, that's a fast, fascinating uh, difference there. So the, yeah. the 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 key verse is Psalm twenty two three. That's Psalm twenty two three. That's it, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. the verse yeah. that he got. And how how much traction has that verse gotten in the last sixty years in the body of Christ? Well, that's interesting. In the last fifty years, quite a bit. Yeah. So I've been trying to put together an appendix for the book I'm working on on every published reference to that verse in this context, with this meaning. Right. And I'm having, other than Lazelle and some of his closest counterparts, I'm having a hard time finding it in published forms before the early 1970s. Okay. But there was a, a charismatic Methodist army chaplain, believe it or not, who latched onto this theology as the centerpiece for his chaplaincy in the army. Wow. And so he began to, his fellow, his name was Merlin Carruthers, and he began to teach this to folks in the army, that if you were having difficulties and you felt like God was not present with you, that what you needed to do was, regardless of the circumstances, you needed to begin to praise God. And that's that was the centerpiece of his pastoral ministry. And he wrote a book that got published in 1972 that was a huge bestseller. It's the same theology, but it was for pastoral care. And in, and in fact, it was a de, almost a devotional sort of book. Wow. And the publisher, uh, publishers like to sell books. They were so enamored of the large, unexpected sales of this book, they commissioned a former Assemblies of God minister out in Oregon, Judson Cornwall, to write a counterpart book applying that same theology to congregational worship. And Judson Cornwall wrote a book, 1973, if I remember correctly, Let Us Praise. Yeah, that was a huge and book. And that book became a huge bestseller. Yeah. And that, that book and Judson Cornwall with his um, traveling speaking ministry, he's the one who really helped disseminate this theology more broadly. Yeah. Because, because notice, he's Assemblies of God background, not latter rain. So he had a legitimacy in some of the denominations that had rejected Reg Lazelle's earlier articulation of it. Yeah. How many references do you have in that appendix of some, for Psalm 22? Uh, single, single space, it now runs seven pages. Seven so, pages. Um, yeah, let me pull it. I have it pulled up. Hold on just a second. Yeah. I mean, since I have, you know, began to, you know, since we met and I began to read your book and, and, and catch some of the things that you've discovered, you know, it starts to stick out. You know, you start to notice it uh, oh, yeah. when you're when you're reading things or listening to people talk. Or I mean, I see it on social media. I mean, any any of the major influencers in terms of modern worship 
uh, you're going to find this if you, if without even a very, very detailed look, you're going to, you're going to find the, find people quoting Psalm 22, three, they may not even say Psalm 22, three, but you'll hear in God's enthroned in our praises. God inhabits our praises. You'll hear those phrases a lot. So just this year, I've uh, found it on the website for Regent University's graduate worship program. Um, Sharon Dougherty has a new book out, Praise and Worship, A Key to Victory. And Lamar Boschman has a new book out that has it. Um, Just going through other kind of historic names, I can find it on Ralph Carmichael, Terry Law, Derek Prince. I'm just trying to, Darlene Checks, her book, Extravagant Worship, 2002, Buddy Owens, who's, um, was Critical and Promise Keepers, Carol Simbala, who I think is um, connected with Brooklyn Tabernacle. Oh, yeah, Jim Simbala, um, yep. Yep, um, Joseph Garlington, who was um, a key figure in African-American praise and worship, uh, John Wimber, yeah. Um, Sally Morgenthaler, who had an important book in the mid-90s, Watchman Nee, uh, Judith McAllister, who put Praise and Worship on the map for Black Pentecostals, Mike Bickle, speaking of IHOP, yeah. Twyla Paris, Jack Hayford. Oh, yeah. List goes on and on. On and on and on. Howard Draczynski. Um, yeah. Yeah, Matthew Lilly, uh, a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> our, our good friend, uh, David Fritch, who we've had on here before, wrote the book called Enthroned uh, about yeah. the tabernacle of David and and literally uses that word in, in as the title of his book, which is from Psalm 23. And, and I can even give the historic background on how you kind of get two streams of thought. Is it inhabit or is it enthroned? Oh, yeah. Because depending um, on the translation, some say inhabit, on the translation, and the and the Hebrew word itself is vague enough; it can lean one way or the other way. So, like Jack Hayford, who knows Hebrew, does his own translation of the verse in the, okay. in the late 1960s, 1970s, and he decides to go with God is enthroned on the praises of Israel, and so hence um, he writes songs like Majesty. Right. Worship his majesty. And he he and some others really pick up on the kind of royal images connected to praising in God's presence. Yeah, which uh, probably connects to a lot of the ideas and language about coming into the throne room of God and those kinds of ideas, oh, yeah. um, which are the kinds of things that I heard growing up and, and, and which were kind of implied uh, in, in some of the songs that we, we sang and that kind of thing. There's yeah. also, there's a book, I don't know if you've, looked into the writings by Dick Eastman. He's a, he's a missions guy. I forget which book it is. He writes a lot about worship and prayer. I don't know if he heard it in an Asian nation or whatever, but the, they took Psalm 22, three and said that praise makes a big chair for God to come sit in. And, and so he was, I guess, somewhere in the Asian nation and they were trying to translate what they were saying, Psalm 22, three back to English. And it came across as praise makes a big chair for God to sit in, which I thought okay. was was kind of funny. <laughs> that is but, kind of funny. I mean, I I've seen so many variations on the basic theme. Right. Um, some folks, <laughs> some folks like the notion of dwelling. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, that's 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 amazing. So, I mean, I, I would say just to folks who are tuning in that we need to understand that this idea, you know, we need to understand how this has emerged in the last 60, 70 years and connected to Reg Lazell. And I think we should we should look at it thoughtfully, prayerfully, biblically, and say, is this something God is restoring or has reminded us of and is true? Uh, or is this some kind of weird Pentecostal charismatic <laughs> thing that has invaded the church or somewhere in between? And uh and I, you know, I, I believe that there's there's truth in it. And, uh, and I'm going to continue to, to teach it and preach it. And, and I believe you can even make a case biblically without Psalm 22.3 for the ideas that many people use Psalm 22.3 to encapsulate the idea that we can experience God's presence. Well, uh, I mean, if I can affirm that, it is one of the most classic traditional notions in 20 centuries of history 
of Christian worship history, of an expectation for God's presence in the assembled worshiping community. Yeah. That is a constant. Yes. What that gets attached to and how it gets played out and how it gets articulated is where all the variation is. Right. Um, Yeah, because it's typically, you know, in modern worship, really attached to the music Whereas I, I'd imagine historically it was probably also more connected to um, the Eucharist and, and you know, pre- preaching and teaching the word of God, probably in Protestantism and, and some of those kinds of things. Well, or even more fundamentally, the assembly itself. Just, yeah, just the believers gathered together. Yeah. Where two or three are gathered. Right. You know, there's a particular um, theologian that I like. Well, he says it this way. Jesus Christ is the original sacrament. Mm. It's, it's the embodied person of Jesus that makes God present on the earth. Yeah. And since his ascension, it's now the assembled body of Christ, the church, right. that makes God's presence present on the earth. Mm. And so I like to think of these other things, the Lord's Supper, preaching, music even, as ways of the church exhibiting itself yeah. as the holy temple that God right. indwells and inhabits. Yeah, um, that's good. I like that. It's similar, but it's a different sort of theology. Yeah, That's not I why like you that. have me on here to talk about my own theology. No, it's not, but I, I like that. I think that's a fun place to, to sort of wrap up the conversation too. So sure. um, thank you so much. Is, is there anything else you'd like to leave people with? I mean, it, it will sound like a commercial, but I mean, if you're interested in this, I really encourage you to to buy the book that I'm working yes. on. There's a co-author too, Lim Swing Hong, um, and it should be out sometime, probably late, mid to late 2021 from Baker. And the title is um, Presence and Purpose. Yes. And I would encourage everyone to get the Loving on Jesus book. It's a pretty easy read. and uh, And I'm excited to read the more detailed version too. So we can link link to the, all those in the description for the episodes so that those of you who are tuning in can just click through and get those books. We'll definitely well, do I, that. Man, I apologize for the infomercial there, but... I, no. I, we're, I ju- we're just scratching the surface with this conversation today. Yeah, I mean, we and we didn't even really get into how this theology becomes so heavily musicalized and gets connected right. to the Tabernacle of David Right. by some or, or the tabernacle of Moses by others. But I, I yeah. think our time's up, so you'll just have yeah. to read the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think there's enough there to just stir people's interest and, and appetites. And so, man, thank you so much for, for being on Thanks today. for the opportunity, yeah, this, Matthew. This thanks for the so, opportunity. So fun. Hey, thanks everyone for tuning in today. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, would you please uh, share this with your friends? You can post it on social media, send the link out to people, share it with your uh, worshiping, praying communities, and that will encourage people and help equip people and get the word out there. If you're on Apple, if you could leave us a rating or a review, that helps more people see the podcast. If you're on YouTube, just give us a quick thumbs up or a comment, and that would be great. Thank you so much. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for more amazing episodes. Don't forget God's presence changes everything.